Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Greetings, fellow time travellers. I love you all. Uh, it's always great to have you with me, and it's great to have you with me once again today as we continue our odyssey through time and space, travelling all around the world uh, in search of stories uh, and learning lessons from history that can inspire and uplift us. And by God, we need inspiration and uplifting right about now. To help support this podcast series and to get exclusive content Competitions, questions and answer sessions, all that kind of chit-chat and membership really belonging to a sense of being part of a family, a community. For all of that, um, you can sign up to my patreon.com site and it is unashamedly, it's the financial support that we get from the patreon.com presence that makes the podcast series that Paul and I do here possible. So a huge thanks to everyone who's already part of the family and if you're not and you'd like to be, uh, it's a great group of people. Uh, I'm not even going to be patronising and say all like-minded. I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's plenty of disagreement and different points of view out there as well. But it's a, it's a community of of people who are like-minded in that they like a conversation and they like to have ideas challenged and to challenge other ideas. Okay, that'll do for the advert. It's time now to strap into the time machine as we set off on the next stop on my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. Trade, technological advancement and entrepreneurial dynamism are all on the rise. New money challenges old. With the invention of the printing press, information goes viral. New religions are winning followers and converts. And Bibles are finally being printed into languages people speak. From this cauldron of change comes a version of the Bible that cements the English language and propels it around the globe. Hi Neil, last week we watched as a malarial hellhole became a shining beacon that attracted people full of hope and ambition. Where are we this week? Hi Paul, uh, well this week's episode is about the transformative effect of, of an object uh, and the power of words and language. So today it's not so much where we are but what we're holding and the object in question is a book or more specifically an English language version of a very old book. From being commissioned, this new version takes seven years to complete. It's the King James Version of the Bible, and we're in Stationers Hall in the City of London as it's undergoing its final exhaustive checks. This one stands out for me particularly 
um, because it's about a book, the book that matters profoundly to a great swathe of the population in times past and in the present and into the future. There's simply no avoiding having somewhere in your line of sight when it comes to the history of planet Earth, the King James Bible. And and that that might sound like an overblown claim, but I don't think it is. Uh, The Bible, the contents thereof, matter to the children of the book, the people of the book, which is to say Christians, Jews and Muslims all base their lives on the Bible. And the version of of the Bible that's had the, the greatest reach, I would say, globally, is the King James version of the Bible. We'll get into all of that. So Jewish people and Islamic people, they, they would say the the book, the Bible is the, the Bible. I mean it's the you know, it's the we're to, you know we're talking about the Old Testament that unifies the people of the book. That's the book. It's the Old Testament. And Christianity and Islam and Judaism all have roots that go back to Genesis. Obviously, you know, the Christian faith has the New Testament, but the Bible in its entirety is the book upon which the three great monotheisms of planet Earth, that's the foundation work. And the King James Bible, because of the language, which is to say English, has had the greatest reach. I don't think there's any way really of disputing that fact. It overlaps, obviously, with parts of the story of the world that we've already aired. Johannes Gutenberg and his printing press launched an information revolution. It shifted things from handwritten to the the printed word and the ready access to that printed word. In order to get the, the printing press up and running, he had needed money. His financial backer was Johann Fust, of the two names it's the one least likely to be remembered. Nonetheless, Gutenberg's press would not have been possible without the cash injection that was made by Johann Fust. And that that relationship, that coming together of those two characters is emblematic of the entrepreneurial dynamism that cranked into operation in the later Middle Ages. The information revolution was part and parcel of it, but it was a product of social change. And the underlying social change was that the system called feudalism, it was on the wane. I mean, some people say now that we're... Those who who believe in a new world order believe that we could be moving into a kind of neo-feudalism, which is to say a very thin governing ruling class, tiny in number, and everybody else serfs. (laughs) Everybody else reduced that kind of impoverished slavery, which is what feudalism was. Feudalism was was land ownership, and and the system meant that if you lived on the land, you belonged to the landowner. So that the landowner owned the land, and by definition, he owned the people on it. But that system was had had run out of steam. It had prevailed, and it was running out. There was an emergent middle class, you would say of self-made people, because the opportunities were there for aspiring you know, merchants, inventive, creative people who were coming up with new equipment, like the printing press in the case of Gutenberg. People were chasing and making money. 
And that new money was part of what was changing society. And, and so people were serfs no longer. A whole new social system was evolving. But those first generations of new money, they came from the world of the poor. That was their background. Their parents and their grandparents were those impoverished serf-type people. And so they still had about them the scent of the past, you know. They smelled of the soil and of the sea and the mines and so on. They were just a generation removed from all of that. They were a kind of a, a, a liminal, an intermediary stage. And of course, the people, the, the mass of the population in England, they, they spoke English. That was the language of the, of the mass of the population. The vernacular, that's how they communicated one to another which set them apart from the nobility and the clergy. The nobility spoke French to one another, and the clergy and the nobility who were educated spoke and read Latin. There was a social divide there. The lower orders spoke English, and the upper, the upper classes separated themselves out in many ways, but not least because they spoke French and Latin. And within that, in that, that being the status quo, the Bible, the book, had existed only in Greek for hundreds of years. You know, you, you read it in Greek, or you, or, you re, or you read it in Latin. But in any event, it was foreign to the mass of the English population. You might say it was an audiobook, in that if you wanted to hear the word of God, you had to go to church and hear it read out by a clergyman. You couldn't read it. People couldn't read. And in any event, there was nothing in English to read. So that underscored what had always been the dominant and dominating position of the priests, the priestly class, because apart from anything else, they interceded. You know, the, the mass of the population depended upon the priests to hear the word of God. So it was a control mechanism. Yeah, I mean, you know, everyone was, well, everyone was notionally Christian, Catholic, and in order to get your instructions, the only people that could read the instruction manual were the priests. So they had this unwavering relationship to power because they could read Latin. So this whole system began to be, I suppose, undermined by, in 1455, Gutenberg and the, and the press, because the potential to print and widely circulate anything was an information revolution. Prior to that, it took forever for scribes to make a copy in handwriting of anything, the Bible included. The mere possibility of the printing press meant that the Bible, along with everything else, was now potentially available for wider circulation. And the Bible, even when it was printed by Gutenberg, it, it was in Latin. So the first mass circulation Bibles were in Latin, but nonetheless they could be widely disseminated and, and quickly in a way that had never previously been possible. And in that world, in that, you know, that second part of the 15th century and going into the 16th century, the emergent middle class, they wanted things. They wanted to improve themselves. They wanted that in that way that you know, people with some money, they want, they want stuff. And amongst the things they wanted, they wanted to be able to own and read the Bible for themselves. 
And that drove the need for translation, right? So it was all well and good that you could get your hands on a Latin Bible or a Greek Bible, but the mass of the population wanted it in their own language. Now, this is true elsewhere in the world. This is true elsewhere in Europe. People who spoke French wanted Bibles in French. People who spoke German wanted Bibles in German. But to go back to the Gutenberg Bible, that's closely tied, obviously, to Martin Luther's 95 Theses, that handwritten document that he nailed to the church door in Wittenberg. But somebody else took that handwritten document and printed it. So that was transformed from something in manuscript to something printed. So that, that bonds you know, Martin Luther and, and Gutenberg together forever. And that was how the Reformation began. It was with the circulation of information. The 95 Theses were calling for the reform of the church, not the overthrow of the church. It was Martin Luther demanding that the church do better. And that, that demand for reform, courtesy of the printing press, could be widely disseminated. The Reformation also inspired and encouraged and demanded that everyone, everyone, establish a direct contact with God without the intercession of priests. Because the Reformation was all about how the, the, the priesthood was corrupt and it was unnecessary anyway to have to have someone between you and the Almighty. The Reformation was all about people making their own peace with God, having their own understanding of the truth as revealed by the Word of God, which was the Bible. And so it meant that increasingly there was a demand for and a need for the Bible in the vernacular, in the language that people actually spoke. And so in English, it was the demand for the, for the Bible in English. Now, as early as 1384, John Wycliffe had overseen a translation into English of the Bible. That transition from something that was out of reach into something in the vernacular had, had already happened by 1384. Martin Luther, though, made a translation into German of the Bible in 1522. So in that first heat of Reformation, he had translated the Bible into German. Four years later, 1526, William Tyndall provided, came up with translation of the New Testament. Okay, so that that new part of the Bible upon which Christianity depends. And Tyndall had used Martin Luther's translation and had translated that into English. Those were the stepping stones. So there you go, 1526, there's now an English translation of the Bible. And it was in 1535, so this is all happening quite quickly, that the first full Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, was provided by an ecclesiastical reformer called Miles Coverdale. Okay, so 1535, there are now versions of the Bible in English that are becoming popular, for which there is a demand. Another version of the Bible, there's, you know, it's, an, it's, it's out there in different places at different times, but a very popular translation of the Bible was the so-called Geneva Bible, because of its place of origin. And Miles Coverdale had been involved in that one as well. So he was instrumental in this process. And the Geneva Bible was the version of the book that was used by William Shakespeare. It was used by John Donne. 
It was used by John Bunyan, author of The Pilgrim's Progress, which is indicative of the popularity and the reach of the Geneva Bible. Now we come to King James, the sixth of Scotland and the first of England. Elizabeth dies, she is replaced by King James. And he's no sooner in post, he's no sooner in place than he commissions another translation into English of the Bible. It is a product to some extent of the fact that as soon as he arrived, because because he was a stranger in a strange town, you know, he, he comes down from Scotland, takes up residence in London, and everyone's suspicious of him. Who is this Scot and what's he going to do? And amongst other things, he's being pestered by Catholics, by Protestants, and by all creeds in between, who are all anxious about where they're going to fit. All of them want influence. All of them want power and control. So there are all these religious factions are, are in at the, at the new king, try, trying to assess him, and, and you're trying to persuade him of, of which way he should, he should lean. And in, in amongst all of that, James appears to have thought that a way to pour oil on troubled water, to provide something unifying, was to come up with a, a fresh translation of the Bible upon which everyone could depend and from which everyone could draw. That sounds all very, very high thinking, but it's, it's also true to say that the Geneva Bible came with marginal notes, additions to the text, you know, not the word of God, but comment. And a lot of those comments in the ever-popular Geneva Bible challenged, amongst other things, royal authority. You know, stating that's a basic concept that nobody's mightier than God, and even kings are, are subject to that authority. And amongst other things, James fancied getting rid of those comments. In any event, what he commissions and what is created between 1604 and 1610 is what has gone down in history, but almost in legend, as the King James Version. The authorised version of the Bible for the English-speaking population. It's also known as the KJV, just by the initials, the King James Version. And there is no denying that it is the foundation for the version of the English language that is still spoken today. Early 17th century or not, it is the foundation document of the English language and of English literature. Anyone studying English literature, the classics and all of the rest of it, has to have to hand a copy of the King James Version of the Bible. It's the base for all of it. And it's full, apart from anything else, of turns of phrase, idioms, so to speak, that everyone has heard, but they may not know that they come from the King James translation of the Bible. For example, you've got, out of the mouths of babes, fought the good fight, do we see eye to eye? That idiom wasn't there, that turn of phrase wasn't there until the translation of the King James version of the Bible. Signs of the times. The powers that be. I mean, that's an expression that I use all the time. Rise and shine. I mean, how every day is that? Rise and shine. A fly in the ointment. A thorn in the side. A man after his own heart. How often do you hear that? Uh, the apple of his eye. That's just a smattering. 
the King James Version of the Bible is writ through, it, it marbled through with everyday expressions that are on everyone's tongues, on everyone's lips. The chances are, even as they're using them, they have no idea that they come from the King James Version of the Bible. And so, in terms of the moment, you know, that moment in the story of the world, you could place it in 1610, and the location would be Stationers Hall, close by St Paul's Cathedral, in the city of London. It was the premises of the Royal Company of Stationers, right? (laughs) The people making stationery. And what they did, starting in 1610, the Bible's there, it's complete, the translation's there. And because it's going to be, because it's destined for every church in the land, from cathedral to parish church, the people behind it, all the people working on the translation, they want to make sure that it sounds good when it's read out loud. I mean, it is to be read. It's to be read by every man, woman and child in the vernacular. That's the point of it. But it will also be read out every Sunday in the churches. And so a great deal of attention is paid to whether or not it's got the right cadences and rhythms, whether the very sound of it is uplifting, which is what it's supposed to be. So it was read out loud from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through with an audience to make sure that it had the right sounds, which strikes me as extraordinary. Obviously, there have been multiple other translations, more modern translations of the Bible since then, such that the language of the King James Version, to our ears, it does sound archaic. It does sound old-fashioned. But there's also no denying that it resonates. It has a a presence in the room. When you hear in the wedding ceremony, you know, you'll often hear, for now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I see in part, but then shall I know, even as also I am known. That's it in the King James Version. And there's a richness to that translation that just seems to be immortal. So the writing process took a long time. And how long did the reading process take? And the revision. They were at work, teams of, of people translating, going back to the, you know, going all the way back to the original Greek and drawing upon ex- extant translations into other vernaculars, including English. It's a massive research project, you know, to try. There was, it's, it's very difficult, I suppose, to try and predict what the motivations were. I mean, on the one hand, you might say that, that a, a motivation was to get to the truth of the Bible to make sure that the translation from the original was perfect. And also to take advantage of Wycliffe and Coverdale and all that, and the Geneva, other translations. There was an, a desire to take in all that was best. So it was a massive undertaking. It was initiated, it was commissioned in 1604, and it was, it was finally ready in 1610, 1611. So it's all of these people, work, whole teams of people working full time across all of those years. And when they started reading it out loud in Stationers Hall, it took a year. You know, it wasn't a sustained reading that lasted for a year. But the process of reading it out loud from start to finish was spread across a whole calendar year. Now, why this is such an important part in the story of the world is that English is the language of the world. To some extent, that's because it's also the language of the internet. The internet has gone all over the world. 
and so much of it was and is in the English language. So it's the language of the internet, but English was also the language of the world before the internet because of the King James Version of the Bible. Since the early part of the 17th century, it has been the fundamental building block of English as a language. Those idioms that I mentioned before, the apple of his eye, rise and shine and all of the rest of it, those and more besides, they're right through every, every novel you can think of in the English language, from Moby Dick to, you know, Hemingway and the old man in the sea, those turns of phrase are always there. And because the English and then the British, after King James, you know, Britain started to be an entity rather than England and Scotland as two separate things, that coming together meant that the British went out into the world aboard their ships and in people's personal belongings and in the cargoes of those ships went the Bible because the Bible went with everyone and so the Bible in English went to India and the Bible in English went all over Africa and the version of English that people began to learn because they were hearing from and reading from the Bible was the King James version of English and it means there's simply no denying whether you're a person of faith or not there is just no getting away from the fact that more than any other book, it's the King James Version of the Bible that changed the world, forever and for everyone. Scientific thought takes an important step forward as the ghost of a half-plucked chicken haunts a city square. Observation and analysis are key to understanding the world and the wider cosmos. The new scientific method is born and with it, great minds propel us towards the modern world. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. I'd love to have you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel. And to help build this podcast, please tell your friends about it. Get them listening and write the review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. The music's composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucy and Archie and Teddy. The finance is taken care of by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Squared Studios. The graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. podcast's production. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.